Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast, brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. Your farming challenges are unique, so your practices should be too. We're here to share emerging ideas, build connections, and provoke conversation. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm your producer, Kim Chase. And I'm your host, Monty Bottens. Thanks for joining us. Before we jump into the podcast, we'd like to let you know about our Ag Emerge Summer Summit. Mark your calendars for August 4th and 5th. Come see Monty in person and experience soil health and regenerative agriculture in action on the Bottens Family Farm in Cambridge, Illinois. From the basics to the wild side, get your questions answered and engage in thought-provoking discussion as we share years of experience in a full transparency farm tour. Oh, and we can't be all work and no play. So to wrap up the event, we'll spend a fun evening together in the pasture to enjoy dinner and live music at the 4th Annual concert with the cows hosted by grateful grace so to get more information and register for our event head on over to our website at www.asn.farm and now on to our show Thanks for joining us. Today, we welcome Dr. Fatma Kaplan. She is the co-founder, CEO, and CSO of Farinim. Not only is she an entrepreneur and accomplished scientist with experience in biology and chemistry, she also has a passion for understanding the intricacies and behaviors of both parasitic and beneficial nematodes. Mani and Fatma explore everything from nematodes in agriculture to nematodes in space. Yes, You heard that right, space. Dr. Kaplan conducted the first agricultural biocontrol experiment in space at the International Space Station in 2020. Now that's an awesome story. So let's jump right in. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Ag Emerge podcast. I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Fatma Kaplan. Welcome Fatma. How are you doing today? Uh, Thank you, Monty, uh, for this invitation and opportunity. And I'm doing fine. Well, that's great. Fatma is the founder, the CEO, and the chief science officer, CSO, of Farinim. And it's an interesting company that is taking a whole new approach to many th- all things nematode. And I know everybody is excited to hear about nematodes. You, you stay awake at night thinking about nematodes. But you know, most people think nematodes are bad and uh, we want to kill them. But believe it or not, there's there's good guys out there too. So Fama, I want you to kind of just walk us through a little bit of Farinam and how you got started, your background, your story, what brought you to today and all the exciting research you've done on nematodes. Well, Farinam's start has a lot to do how I uh, grew up. I come from a uh, farming family. My grandparents were hazelnut uh, farmers and they had hazelnut orchards and I have really great memories being at the farm. And I also know about the pesticides and pest control, how much it makes a difference in farmers' life and the productivity. And I remember my grandfather mentioning about using the pet, uh, you know, pest control and how much their um, yield improved and increased. And since knowing that, I started a College of Ag. And from there, I had the opportunity to come to US to do PhD. And after I did PhD, and I had this great opportunity as a postdoctoral training in chemistry to identify pheromones from this microscopic roundworm called nematodes. Uh, 
And of course, at that time, I knew about the bad guys, the ones that attacked plant roots, because it nearly wiped out um, uh, wine industry and grape um, wines in uh, my home country. So I thought this is a great opportunity. If I'm able to identify the structure, then we can use pheromones to control agricultural pests. The reason for that, I knew about the insect pheromones and how effective they were used to control insect pests. It was eco-friendly and um, it didn't harm uh, non-target um, pests or non-target organisms, the good guys and the pollinators. And I thought nematode, nematode pheromones could do the same thing. And from there, uh, when I identified the model nematode uh, called C. elegans, it's sex pheromone, USDA hired me. And it was in 2008, and bromide was removed from the market or phased out that farmers needed a solution to control the bad guys, plant parasitic nematodes, specifically root knot nematode. It turns out that uh, to, uh, now it's two years ago, we did customer discovery and we talked to farmers and farmers problem with the root knot nematode has not been solved. They're still um, looking for solution ever since methyl bromide is removed, which was bad for the environment and they still don't have a good solution. While I was at the USDA, um, initially our talk was let's move this mating pheromone to a root knot nematode because you can disrupt mating in insect and have a good control. It turns out that root knot nematode did not use mating. So it just uh, produced, reproduced. So we couldn't use the mating pheromone approach and we thought we should look for other behaviors, are the nematode uh, pheromones regulating other behaviors where we found out that dispersal behavior. And then from there, uh, in this case, I uh, stepped back and looked at the good guys. That was the time I learned about the good guys. These are the, uh, these, they're called beneficial nematodes. They're commercially available and to control insect pests. And they had a problem with uh, uh, efficacy. Sometimes they really work uh, great, sometimes it didn't. And it turns out that the dispersal behavior of these nematodes regulated by pheromones. And we thought we could actually use pheromones to improve their efficacy. So that is, while I was at the USDA, I wasn't thinking about starting a company and the seeds for pheromone were planted. My uh, idea there, the USDA politics affect your life the way you never imagined. So the politics, <laughs> USDA started shrinking. And I thought, well, I could um, pursue this mission and the goal at a university, work with extension scientists who are working with farmers and uh, pursue it as a faculty, maybe do some portion as a basic research, learn more about the pheromones, and at the same time work with the extension scientists and collaborate with big companies to bring this technology to the market. Well, it didn't work out that way. And then while we were um, writing uh, grants and I had collaborators at the USDA, the other branches, and they said, um, this, is, this really has potential. And the scientists were working with these good guys that controlled insect pests. And they were working with farmers too. They actually knew the problem and they had the same um, thinking that I did. They said, well, could you write a grant? And let's pursue this. 
And then all of a sudden, well, I didn't really know how to uh, submit a grant all by myself. <laughs> then we started a company. And from there, I didn't know I was a scientist. Yes, I did have, you know, farming background, but having a startup is very different. So we learned, we read a lot about it. Then we got into an incubator um, in Florida. It was a University of Florida incubator. They started accepting regular citizens. And we had mentors. They helped us out for the pitch presentations and how to pitch the investors. That was total new territory for me. And we thought the goal is to bring this technology to the market. If it's not university system, if it is not USDA, but there are other ways. And it turns out that it was at the end Farnham. And we got our first funding in 2017. It was an SBIR grant from a USDA. And at the same time, we got funding from IndieBio Accelerator. They said, well, we have to go to um, San Francisco for four and a half months uh, for this program. We thought this was, you know, grant funding, accelerator funding, synergizes. We can show proof of concept that with the pheromones, we can actually manipulate nematode behavior and improve their efficacy for insect control. And when we got to uh, San Francisco, it was like, wow. This is an ecosystem and for entrepreneurs and the whole, uh, you know, uh, entrepreneur ecosystem, we thought if you're going to make this technology work, that's the place. And from there, we got to connect it to UC Davis and we got into uh, UC Davis HM Klaus Incubator. That was very beneficial uh, for us and to put one leg in California, then we moved our lab completely here. Now we are in the Ag Start. And since then, we've made a lot of progress. We showed that um, pheromones can improve beneficial nematode behavior and efficacy in the greenhouse against pecan weevil and citrus weevil and two other insect pests, black soldier fly and some of the model insects. Then this year we showed it works in the field even when the temperature goes down to 10 Celsius. You know, biologicals um, work very effectively and they do have limitations, you know, like every method with beneficial nematodes, they work really well at the temperature 25. Once you, you know, go above and below that temperature, the limitations kicks in and pheromones improve those limitations at 10 Celsius, the soil temperature, it's in the field and it worked really well against pecan weevil. And that was the highlight of our time. And then the next challenge we had was, um, what about a production? And people used to ask, well, can you license it? Then we thought, well, in theory, we could. And then we realized, well, if we licensed it to a company, where are they going to buy the product? There is no commercial manufacturing for the nematode pheromones. Then, well, as a scientist, we didn't really think about it initially, but as a business person, it's like, oh, we, we need to have a supply here. <laughs> then we wrote a grant to NSF this time for manufacturing, and we went through a number of things, how we can um, make the product, but it should also be cost-effective that we can actually make money. And if we can't make money, then it's not going to be staying in the market. So um, recently, we were able to show that, yes, it works, our uh, new method, which is scalable, 
now we have a scalable manufacturing method, then we are getting ready uh, to submit our phase two grant to NSF and at the same time uh, going to be raising funds from investors. Fantastic. It's an amazing story of, of where, you, where you've been and, and where you've come to, plus all a great foundation you've laid for what what's looking uh, ahead in the future. So uh, it's there's a lot to unpack on there. And I was kind of taking some notes as we we're going, going along, just so that everybody, we can make sure everybody's up to speed on everything. So you mentioned methyl bromide, and that is a soil fumigant. So our traditional way uh, and our traditional thoughts of how we uh, approach things, right, is if we have a problem, we try to kill it. So uh, methyl bromide uh, essentially takes out anything living within the soil, not only the nematodes, that, the root knot nematode that you're trying to target in this case, and a lot of it's used, uh, especially in carrot production, or other uh, soil born, or, or soil harvested things, especially because they can have a, such a, an effect on them. Plus, like you said, in grapes or almonds or any other crop, those uh, parasitic nematodes can have quite an impact. But methyl bromide is also very um, active as far as a, believe, a greenhouse gas. So it, the, the, it gassing off to the atmosphere is why it got outlawed uh, in uh, California from, from use. So uh, I think there's maybe some special exceptions here and there, but it, it's largely gone. So that tool's out of the toolbox, so we've tried to replace it with, you know, there's a host of companies coming up with steam, uh, electrolysis, they do solarization where we till the ground over and over and over again to try to get it to sterilize the ground, or we use plastic culture to where we're trying to heat it up so much or suffocate it or <laughs> all kinds of different approaches. And uh, so that, you know, what you're researching there is, you, okay, so you found this pheromone that that was basically a, a mating pheromone thought, hey, here we go. We're going to apply this to root knot nematode. Then they don't respond to it. See, that's just not fair. But, you know, the unintended consequences, you found out that basically uh, you were stimulating the ones that actually feed on the root knot nematode. Is that a fair way to say that, Fatma? Uh, not or, or the, how, how does that process work there on, because you couldn't disrupt the mating of the root knot nematode. How, how did that initial discovery, uh, come in to help with the control of that? So for the root knot nematode, we also learned that we learned quite a bit from the biology that helped us out how to control them. It turns out that they actually know which plant is infected, which one is not infected. So if the plant is infected, it, um, it has nematodes on it. And the nematodes we know communicate now with the pheromones. And at that time, that was the thinking that uh, if they're communicating with each other, then they, and it was also shown that if it's infected, they prefer the healthy plant, uninfected. Yeah, they want, they when, want to go where there's fresh food instead of where everybody else is hanging out, right? Yeah. What if we said to nematodes, this plant, this healthy plant is infected? using their own pheromone, even though it's not, then it would say, uh, it, it would just make a decision to go away, looking for some healthy plant. Excellent. And eventually if it, because at that particular life stages, they have a limited resource of their own. They don't feed on anything until they find the insect. And we thought if we keep them long enough, they will run out of their food and they will die. So, and it doesn't, yes. Right. I mean, how it's simple, and, but that requires a significantly different way of thinking to solve the problem, right? Because everything yes. else up until then is, you know, bang, 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 how do we kill it? And now, now you're looking at, okay, how do we just 
avoid it and and essentially yes. starve it out. You know, I would also say having a background and farm makes a big difference. We're taking a short break to share that the Ag Emerge podcast is brought to you by the team at Ag Solutions Network. Rooted in innovation, ASN is committed to leaving the land better than we found it, not simply maintaining it. We're here to help you navigate the balancing act of productivity and building a legacy. From practices to products, ASN is more than a new jug. It's a new way of thinking. So don't be afraid to be different. Be afraid to be the same. Contact Ag Solutions Network today at asn.farm. And now back to our show. Yeah, that's amazing how, you know, just thinking differently in that approach really, um, really, really changes everything. So let's back up a little bit. Uh, talk to us about pheromones, what they are, what their chemical composition is, how they're made in nature. Just just kind of a little overview of pheromones 101 and uh, not not for the guys that thinking they're buying the pheromone cologne and you know to get a date stuff like that you know so there there's this is a real science and and, and what's what's behind it just share with us a little bit about what pheromones are how they work in nature. So pheromones are small molecules. They are released from one organism and affect the behavior of the other members of the same. Uh, species. Well, in layman's term, it's communication signals. You and I communicate by using our voice. Nematodes communicate with the small molecules. And in our case, we speak nematodes. <laughs> so that would be the, hey, we tell them, hey, uh, you know, there's good first source here, come on over here. Or no, the conditions are really bad here, don't come over here. Or the conditions are gonna go really, really bad. Then you have to get ready for the um, harsh conditions. Then they turn into this alternative life stage. So these are small molecules, insect used to communicate. And now we know nematodes also used to communicate. So, and along in your process of everything that, that you're learning on how to tell plants uh, what's what's already been taking or fake them into uh, not attacking uh, certain plants, you also mentioned the beneficial nematodes and, and the work done there and how in the past it's always kind of been hit or miss. And, and let's say in organic production, that's there's not a lot of options for nematode control. So beneficial nematodes are, are kind of what you use, but it's not the greatest, it's expensive, and, and you got this hit or miss going on. And you mentioned you've had a significant improvement there. So what, what kind of changes have, have growers seen in, in the improvement overall, not only in that temperature range, but just in efficacy and consistency of beneficial nematodes using uh, Farinim products? So currently, we are not in the market. We are working with USDA scientists and University of Idaho. They do the trials for us. Uh, with the beneficial nematodes, we are looking at insect kill rate. Beneficial nematodes are good guys, and they control the insect pest within. They can actually kill within 24 to 48 hours in laboratory conditions. And in the field, when they're effective, they, they're actually really fast. Within, um, yeah, within two to three days, they can uh, kill the insects. And as you mentioned, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. When we talk to scientists who are doing um, in the school grounds or other farms, and there are many publications, and it turns out that one of the behavior that is affecting this efficacy is dispersal to search. 
So this happens within two weeks after they emerge, let's say, from an insect cadaver they consumed. Then um, for about two weeks, they're searching. And then they stop when they can't find any insect in the near vicinity. So when the farmers receive these nematodes, they're in that mode, they're not searching. Their power is to search and attack the insects. So with our pheromone product, we remind the nematodes that they're hungry, they need to go out and search. So farmers, when they receive the beneficial nematodes, they add our product and they say, yes, we are ready. So they can also smell the uh, insect pest because uh, that's their, in their nature. It's like the targeted missile. So you put them in the field, they're ready to search and they can go 25 centimeters deeper that's we tested, we know. They can go deeper in the soil too. So even if the uh, target pest is running away, they will find an infect. I love how you make all of this so fun. I mean, you know, a microscopic level, it's a world that's unseen. It's very complex and complicated. And, and Fatma, you do a, a wonderful job of, of explaining it in a way that everybody can understand. So I really, really appreciate it. It's almost like you're making Red Bull for beneficial need methods. You're, you're giving them a, sh get them, get them going. So <laughs> That's excellent. And, um, but no, I, I, so it took a lot of work to get here and you, you mentioned the incubators and that, that you've been a part of, and then, you know, the first incubator, then you went to San Francisco as a part of that incubator. Um, explain that incubator process, what that's about and why is that so critical to bringing new ag technologies to market? What all does that bring together when you come like you said, uh, many people come from an engineering background or you from a science background and to make that into a product and a business. Um, share about that a little bit, how that incubator process works and, and what are some of the impacts it's made on you and your company? Oh, incubators, I would say really essential. <laughs> when you have a biotech company, we have this huge barrier, infrastructure barrier, and oh, that requires money. And when you're just trying to show that the proof of concept, whether it works or not, if you don't have that infrastructure, it becomes impossible. Incubators have that infrastructure, just like universities or at the USDA. And then we don't have to do this huge investment for something we don't really know whether it's going to work or not. So that eliminates that huge barrier for us. So all the funds we raise, small amount, is if it's working, then it's go or no go. Once we show the proof of concept, we know it's going to work, then we can feel a lot more comfortable to raise funds. Same thing for investors. You know, it's a huge risk for them to put a huge uh, amounts of money and just to see whether it is going to work or not. Incubator helps the biotech companies. I think also in some ways to Im investors that we are de-risking the huge technological risk. Right. Then, like you mentioned, some of us engineers, scientists, we don't know how uh, you know product development works. Afterwards, you know, let's say we show the proof of concept. How do we bring it to the market? There are so many different parts to it. And the mentors at the incubators are very helpful. There are different kinds of incubators. And then we don't, you know, sometimes we don't even know how to talk to investors. And I remember the first time when I was preparing a pitch deck, I had no idea. How do you present? What is the presentation? What are these ins and outs? So it was the first incubator that showed it to us. 
and you know you show the problem, then your solution. How are you different from the others? Is there actually a demand? You know, as an academic, I go to the literature first. You know, market research reports. Those are good. They are they're very valuable. But nothing is like actually talking to the farmers or the people in in ag, uh, agriculture ecosystem supply chain, what the manufacturers thinks, what the um, um, pest control advisors, which is really critical in California. That's we learned uh, during the um, NSF funding. So we learned a lot and talking, what, what do we actually need? What do we need to focus? Even though we do have initially very generic idea, we can fix everything, but do we need to fix everything? What does actually farmer needs? then yeah. we can actually focus our efforts to that need. Right. And it gives you that, it almost gives you a path or, or a recipe to follow, right. To, yes. to be successful. So that way you can, you can stay on, on course and on time and, and, you know, thank, thank goodness for those incubators. And like you said, each one has a different specialty and, and, and gets, gets things going. So now today, uh, you're you're part of the ag startup community, uh, which a friend of mine uh, has uh, started there in uh, just outside of UC Davis in California. Talk to us a little bit about this and, and the unique opportunity that uh, the team has put together there uh, in in California, and what what that means to you and other uh, ag tech or biotech businesses that are starting up. Well, it's basically existence, I would say. <laughs> it makes a big difference for our existence in California or existence uh, in general. You know, we are still early stages and uh, even though we didn't raise huge amount of funds to build our own lab, now we can directly access to wet lab space that we don't have to worry about where we are going to be. As a, as a startup, we can't really do a five-year or 10-year lease. With the incubators, then it could be a month-to-month -month or it could be yearly lease, which makes a big difference when you have limited resources. And biotechs requires a lot of money. It's not an app where you can have a computer or you can have a home office. You have to be in a physical place. It needs to have certain safety, uh, up to a code for safety and many of the other things. It is not trivial to set up a wet lab. And we were very appreciative of John, uh, a seller to uh, taking the lead and you know, starting this incubator. Prior to Start, we were at HM Klaus Incubator, which provided really nice opportunity for us. But at that time, it was a very popular incubator and we didn't really have, uh, I think we had only six foot or three foot bench space and it had shared equipment. We benefited and we utilized it uh, as much as we could, but we wanted to hire more people because we wanted to grow. And there wasn't any incubator place in the um, UC Davis area, a uh, UC Davis, Sacramento, Woodland area with a reasonable price. Then Ag Start opened and the bench uh, prices were uh, very reasonable and we could afford. And now we have, uh, we grew since then. We have one research assistant, one visiting scientist and three interns, 
and two of the um, one of the research uh, assistant is going to be full time soon. She's graduating, and one of our intern uh, is going to be full time, and the other one is half time. This is all. Uh, because of Axstart and space availability. So it is helping us grow. Our next stage was, this is really important, and Axstart is expanding, and it is starting a fermentation lab. And we put our uh, name in the list because that was our next stage. Even though we did um, uh, acquire some of the resources or acquired access to resources at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. That's another type of um, incubator or entrepreneurship program. I should mention Activate Berkeley. Now it's Activate Anywhere. They have offices in Berkeley and Boston. The Berkeley office is the one we are in that gives us access to Lawrence Berkeley Lab and ABPDU where there is a facility uh, we have access to transition from shaker plants to bioreactors and scale up. So I think it's really interesting, all of these components that that you have really synthesized together uh, to, to make your company uh, come to fruition. So it's it's not only the, the science behind it, but like you said, it's the, the proof of concept. And then uh, also the business plan and uh, bringing in capital and all these things that, you, you know, you can definitely tell you're a lifelong learner. And... The, the other thing is, is it, it's unique in your space is like you said, it's not just push an app out to, you know, an Android phone or an iOS phone and you magically have, um, you know, a distribution model or a, a production model. You're also now in the process of figuring out how to make the machines to make your product, if, you know, in a simplified way there. So, I mean, you've you've got kind of two layers of complexity in in your production model, right? And and you've made yes. some progress on that. Yes. So that that's that's very exciting to to hear about. So, what now? Once I mean, that's just a, an extra layer of challenge. That's that's really interesting. But now that you have that, uh, you'll be able to uh, probably your products you'll you think you'll license or, or have someone produce for you on your behalf with the technologies that you've developed so that then they can reach a, a farmer to make the difference correct yes uh, we also looked uh, at the business aspect we are moving it's uh, it has so many different parts with the startup, which I have never imagined I would be doing. So we're not just focusing on the science. We have to focus on the business side all at the same time. Even though we don't really have a package, pretty soon we will have a package product that we can actually share uh, with uh, potential customers. We're working with distributors and who's actually specialized in biologicals because we have learned when we had the um, customer uh, discovery calls and the interviews with agriculture ecosystem, we realized uh, some of the distributors are very good with chemicals, some of them are with biologicals. And then we realized some of them directly target row crop growers, some of them specialty crops, some of them specifically greenhouse growers. Then we started which insect pest we can actually get into the market. And then we identified thrips. And TRIPS is really unique because it develops resistance to chemical pesticides. And then the next question is, 
does our solution addresses the problem because we had several different insect pests uh, identified but thrips our solution also solved farmers problem then the agriculture being um seasonal then we thought how can we um get our product into the market uh, that eliminates the seasonality problem, then this trips for the pest is a problem in greenhouses where season is not a problem. And one other advantage of the greenhouse, when we were talking to the um, distributors, they said, you can do a field trial in one greenhouse, doesn't matter where, it's applicable to all the greenhouses throughout the world. But that is not the case for um, other pests. If it's a field pest, you have to do field trials. And when we talk to the distributors, when we talk about field trials, they mentioned 40, 50 field trials. And I thought, okay, so let's see what we have and how we can get into the market the fastest and the minimum amount of work, but that would still not cut the corner, but properly done. Uh, trials, then would get into the market, show that the customers, it is working, then expand from there. So that was, Thrips was one that is globally, uh, opens up the doors to us globally in the greenhouse uh, growers. And then actually it is a problem for other specialty crops in the field. Then we thought in the meantime, we can still do field trials in the field. So we have learned a lot as a scientist in the lab, maybe three replications or three experiments might be enough, but not for the field trials. <laughs> Well, I think that shows the focus that's needed by an entrepreneur. And, you know, you really looked at that market and realized that, hey, we don't have the capital or the runway to do 40, 50 field trials. And plus, it might apply in Salinas, but it doesn't in western Fresno County or it doesn't in, you know, Sacramento County or, or, or somewhere else. So, but like you said, in a controlled environment, hey, if we can do this, we, we can solve a problem in greenhouses, we can adapt it worldwide quickly and you create the minimum viable product, right? So that you've got some cash coming in the doors where then the next iteration, you can go to those field crops, you know, if, if you choose to, or you go to, you know, the next bug in the greenhouse instead of the thrip. So yeah, uh, I, I love how you, you've, you um, you know, narrowed that down. And, and for the other entrepreneurs listening to the podcast today, you know, boy, get it down to the, we all want to do everything for everybody, right? But it's yes. hard. I, I can imagine how hard that was for you to to do that. But uh, uh, the discipline is definitely worth it, isn't it? I think that comes from the farming discipline. It's the planning. We learned it at the farm when I was growing up, managing, you know, the, uh, helping my grandparents and my mom. And, you know, if you don't get things done on time, you're not going to be able to harvest. I think discipline comes from there. Well, speaking of farming, um, I did have an opportunity to, uh, you, you came back to our farm last year in the summer. We offered uh, uh, what we called our summer summit. We're going to do it again this year. And uh, there's ways that you can register for that. Uh, Kim will have that in the show notes. But, uh, you know, really in, in Midwest agriculture, uh, um, what were some of the things that you that you saw here that you found interesting or, or some of the other people who you got to talk to the, at the event uh, describe your experience a little bit. That was actually really amazing exper uh, experience, I would say. Uh, even though we did talk to the farmers during NSF I Corps program, but nothing is like visiting the farm. Uh, 
And, you know, my grandparents were, you know, a specialty crop, hazelnut. Yes, they did grow some wheat and corn, but it was small. It's just for the family. It's not like big farms like you had, or there's like acres and hundreds of acres. It, it was really amazing the way actually at your farm the soybean was grown and how the wheat was controlled and how much experimentation was there and how much you cared about your soil and the land and that connection with the land. And I thought when you're a farmer, when you run your own farm, it's a very different connection, caring about the land and how much the topsoil was eroded over years and years when you mentioned it. Now you're nurturing the farm and the yield started increasing. That was really amazing to hear from a farmer and at the farm and seeing the difference. Well, it was it was fun to be here and fun to show you what we were doing, and uh, we're, we've uh, we've upped the number of trials and tests we're doing again this year. So, looking forward to uh, you know hosting others, and uh, everyone's welcome to to come and see those things. And the biggest thing is, I think um, uh, a lot of times for anybody, you just need to be able to see uh, a different way of doing things before you um, before it catches or before something you want to try. So that. That's what we hope to do is just uh, provide an opportunity for for people to uh, uh, think and, and do different, but, you know, converse with other people in, in the group, too, at the same time. So I'm sure glad you were a part of that. Um, when you're when you're looking forward uh, to the future and you think about what some of the potential impacts are on the work that you're doing today, you know, what do you let's say five, 10, maybe even 15 years from now? When you when you look back on the impact that you've had, what do you what do you want that to be? I think the nematode pheromones, since we are working on it, I think will make a big impact because it really um, expand the application of the pheromones. The current pheromones are volatile from insect, and they target the pest above ground. With the nematode pheromones, we are bringing the uh, pheromone applications to underground soil pests, where nobody sees, you know, when you don't see it, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind. But farmers know, because when you harvest, it's like, oh, where's my <laughs> yield here? <laughs> so soil is just as important as the air we are breathing, because they're all very much in interconnected. It also has the nematode pheromones are different from the insect pheromones because, because we can dry them and we can store them as dry powder and they're water soluble. So it can improve the existing biological efficacy and it creates a uh, composite by a pesticide, uh, we call it nimestim plus beneficial nematodes, and it can be applied to seed treatment. It's already active in very small amount. Let's say two to three grams would be applied to an acre of orchards. It's a lot less, and it doesn't stay in the environment too long, so it keeps our soil uh, soil healthy. It is friendly to soil uh, beneficials and soil microorganisms, and it is non-toxic and it's healthy for us. I think I see a very bright future 
for both above ground and below ground, so, uh, below ground insect pest control or in general pest control. And it can also target um, just specifically the bad nematodes, not the good guys. It's good on the good guys, good nematodes and controls the bad guys without harming the environment. It's bee friendly, pollinator friendly. And I think it will take off in the next maybe five to 10 years. We are going to be seeing it in the stores and it's going to be just mainstream, like the insect pheromones. Oh yeah, nematode pheromones. <laughs> uh, they work for this pest in, uh, in the greenhouse and in the uh, orchards and the row crops. I, I love it, especially on the seed treatment like you're talking about to today on our broad acre uh, commodity crops. You know, many are including a uh, uh, seed treatment for soybean cyst nematode or for corn uh, root knot nematode. Uh, and while it does target those species, like you said, uh, there's always the unintended consequences. Uh, you try to kill one bad guy, but you're you're killing potentially all the other uh, good nematodes that are out there. And we just don't we don't think about good nematodes. You know, you hear the word nematode and you're like, ooh, that's bad. But uh, uh, it's it's this uh, blanket coverage where what you're doing can be very specific on because every nematode's using a different communication pheromone within their species. So uh, that's so exciting. Not only can you do the, the repelling, but you can also you know call them in or or what it's it's uh, the whole communication. Uh, you've opened a a literal can of worms, but uh, they're very, very small. <laughs> so, I mean, it, I, I thank you for that because it's going to get uh, more, more pesticides out of our production model. And, and most of those nematicides are also systemic throughout the plant. So mm -hmm. like you said, can have adverse effects on pollinators and those kind of things. So that's exciting. I love it. <laughs> yes. You know, sometimes people say, how do you compete with the chemical pesticides? When we were talking to farmers and big farm managers, uh, some of the chemicals, you know, they might be very effective, but farmers didn't really have access in California. It might be close to a school region. So we are actually addressing a real need. It's not replacing it, but there is a need that farmers really need that eco-friendly solution. And we learned that last year in New York, school grounds, they cannot use um, chemical pesticides because it's a school ground. And then um, they really didn't have any solutions and they, uh, the Cornell Extension faculty was working with the school grounds, how, do we, how can we control? And they had only one option actually, that was the beneficial nematodes. And they said, well, can we do a trial with you? And I said, yes, we can. Now we are working on uh, improving and scaling up. And I said, let's put it on the schedule. <laughs> now, actually, we had farmers group and working with university scientists from Tennessee. And they reached out to us. And uh, through USDA, we are um, working on flathead, um, flat-headed apple borer. And there was another one. Um, another interest on ambrosia beetle uh, control. So it is getting a lot more popular and people are learning more about it and reaching out to us. Yeah, so you're on those uh, insects and you're basically stimulating the nematodes to attack uh, the larval form that, or when they hatch in the soil during the soil portion of their life, I assume? Yes. Okay, excellent. So see, there's, there's just... 
we got to open our minds on how we can solve problems. And I, I really appreciate what you've done there. It does one other thing. If yeah. the insect has a life stage that is in the soil, sometimes they overwinter in the soil, mm -hmm. it attacks those life stages too. Hmm. Interesting. The soil is not safe for any pest now. <laughs> <laughs> not anymore. <laughs> well, um, let me ask you a, another note. Uh, there's some things that, um, you know, I've noticed and I've, I've enjoyed being, uh, you know, knowing you now for, for a period of time. But, you know, there's a lot of challenges uh, for women in, in your roles. Um, you are a scientist, which is fairly male dominated. Uh, entrepreneurship, you know, several of the pitches that I remember hearing, it, it's 90% plus male dominated category uh, for founders that are that are seeking funding. And in agriculture, uh, still, it's a it's a very male dominated industry. I mean, probably one of the most. So uh, you are bucking the trends here. And <laughs> I'm glad you are I'm very excited about that. Um, what would you suggest for other uh, female entrepreneurs, female scientists, female ag tech startup uh, as encouragement, things that um, that you've looked for that has really helped you uh, succeed uh, despite the, you know, the extra obstacles you've had to overcome? I would say we benefited from incubators, accelerators, and mentors. Always find positive people who believes in your mission and opens the door for you. Sometimes they might sponsor and you might have, you can, I would say you can never have enough mentors. And there are, you know, people out there who are really supportive of the technology and um, try to have a couple of uh, women mentor too. The reason for that is if they accomplished it, they have some tricks in their sleeves. <laughs> They know how to avoid this thing. Uh, you know, yes, we are, you know, experiencing, you know, um, hardship, but they also went through those things and uh, maybe benefit from their scars sometimes. They may not have been successful, but uh, in some areas they have success on the others. If they're successful, that's definitely a... Um, a good recipe to success, but even if they didn't make it at that time, they tell you, if I had known it, I would have done it this way. So you know one way wasn't successful, but they already told about how they could succeed. So definitely benefit from their um, you know, experience. It's both, I think, um, we had really good male and female mentors and who were really positive and believed in our um, mission and goal. John Salaf was one of them. And I'm so glad actually he's a very open-minded and this incubator, the current incubator is very welcoming to um, uh, both uh, women and men as an entrepreneur. And we actually have two uh, female CEOs here. One is me, the other one is Turtle Tree. And let's see, um, uh, there, uh, there are a lot of women. It's, it's a very good mix. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear it. And I love how you're saying, don't, don't take the negatives, but focus on, on the positives and seek out those who will, will help you and, and just, you know, always just be persistent and, and be positive and, and you can make it happen no matter, you know, what, what the circumstances are. So I think that's, uh, 
that's a great advice for for anybody that's looking to to start up or or pursue a new opportunity. So, uh, you know, it's 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 pretty amazing um, all that uh, all that can be done when you when you stay positive. So, um, no, just uh, I, I've enjoyed being a, a part of part of your uh, your story and, and and hearing about it. What other things are, are coming up here in the future? Other things maybe I should have touched upon today during our time together that, that I maybe uh, didn't yet. Let's see. I think we pretty much covered everything. Um, well, the most recent one, I would say, oh, the space one, we probably oh, Yes, I forgot to bring that up. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, this this is this is interesting. You have sent uh, nematodes into space, right? And I I even got a, a coffee cup from you that with the mission logo on it and everything. Tell us about this. How how did that came about and, and what what that was all about? It started out actually in 2018. We had a project from uh, Space Florida, and that was actually wasn't for space. It was actually for Earth related. It was supposed to be for Earth related. And from there, I was introduced to another space group. They said, well, you know, they're sending nematodes to space. Um, maybe um, they can help you out. And it was right about the time when I was talking to investors, nobody knew about beneficial nematodes. And I knew that it was commercial, but none of the investors I talked to, I was at the accelerator. I talked to a lot of investors. It wasn't one or two. It was maybe at least hundred of them. And nobody knew about the nematodes. And I thought, I need to find a way uh, to create um, awareness for these nematodes. But at the same time, I don't have a lot of time, and this has to be integrated to our product development. So when I was introduced to the space group, they said, oh, you know, we can send the nematodes. And the initial idea was to look at the pheromones. It wasn't actually for the nematodes, to look at the nematodes, whether they could produce pheromones. If they did, what kind of pheromones they produced, would be able to use those pheromones on Earth to create a better mixture. Then when we started uh, writing the grants, and I asked them about whether they had money because I can't really afford to uh, send the nematodes to space, they said, yes, they do have some funds. And I said, well, send me one of them. And we talked about it. They loved the idea. And when I wrote the project, it was uh, for the pheromones. And then I talked to our USDA collaborator and I said, well, can you help us out? And here is this potential opportunity. And then uh, we figured out that we didn't really know how the nematodes would uh, be able to infect the uh, insects in space. So it created a lot more basic research. We thought, well, we can still look at the pheromones, uh, what they're producing, but we should also look at some other aspect of this, whether we could actually do a biocontrol in space. Is it actually possible for these nematodes to go through the sand or soil, find the insect and attack the insects in microgravity? And it also has a, a symbiotic bacteria. Now you have two organisms, would they be able to cooperate? So it brought up a whole bunch of um, Questions. One other uh, unique thing about it is, you know, people say, why are you doing biocontrol in space? And I said, well, NASA is, you know, planning to colonize the moon and the Mars. If you're going to go there, you cannot colonize anywhere without agriculture, without food. And I said, we can't use chemical pesticides because air is really precious there. You have to use the biologicals. So um, if you're just going there unprepared, if you bring pests, you know, we can say, well, you know, everything is sterile. Why would you bring pests? And 
then, well, we have all these quarantines not to have the invasive pets. They still invade us. And I said, they're going to invade the space too. Doesn't matter how careful we are, but we don't really want to be caught um, without a guard. We should have some solutions in case they did. One other thing NASA said when I was driving there says, oh, they do actually promote the projects before the flight, during the flight, and after the flight. And I thought, everyone listens, this might be a good place to introduce uh, beneficial nematodes that would create a lot more awareness. So it had the science, it was the awareness that I didn't have money, but I had a source that would be creating without me spending uh, funds. And they actually did. Uh, some part of the project was already on the NASA's website, ISS. But there was one rule I wouldn't really um, say or present or prepare anything without their uh, approval. We said, OK, that's how the mission patch, the cup you have with the mission patch, that is approved by ISS, International Space Station. And USDA, because USDA didn't want anything out without being approved either. So two agencies did. So uh, at the end of the experiment, you know, we sent it in 2019, December. It came back in 2020. And right about the time, uh, luckily, after two months, I think, let's see, in March, we had the COVID shutdown, but by that time, we finished many of the um, experiments and we were able to publish. So it was a success in every way, scientifically and toward the company and uh, awareness of the beneficial nematodes. Believe it or not, uh, BASF talked to me afterwards, we talked to, and they said, hey, did you know this year, BASF is a big company. They highlighted beneficial nematodes in their annual research report. They said, well, we thought, you know, if you think about it, they sell a lot of things, you know, beneficial nematodes is a very tiny part of that, you know, income, but they highlighted it. And I said, well, it might have something to do with us creating very awareness. I don't know whether that was the case or not, but they said they were very happy about it. The scientists we talked to, they said, hey, they highlighted beneficial nematodes even in our annual research. <laughs> well, that was definitely another way to think outside the box, you know, putting a lot of things together for synergy and, and thinking differently to, to, like you said, get that awareness and kind of help get a little jump start on, on what you're up to and what you're doing. So... That's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that, uh, you know, you got good information back from it too. So I'm sure that'll continue to support your, your ongoing efforts. So amazing. It did create visibility that I didn't really expect uh, internationally. There are a couple of uh, companies, they said, hey, we heard about you because of the uh, Astro Nematode. Astro Nematode has its own followers. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> There's something for everybody out there to inter <laughs> to be interested in, right? <laughs> yes, people ask me about it so hard. The project is going, and apparently, when we were doing the updates, people tell me, "Hey, this is what happened. We follow you." And actually, I am presenting Astronimito next week as a plenary lecturer at the International Congress of uh, Nematology in uh, France. So I've been invited to give a talk about it. So uh, the whole nematology community loved the project. Well, that, everybody's going to know who Dr. Kaplan is. So that that is awesome. So, no, I I I really appreciate uh, all, all the things that you're doing to 
like you said, not only bring it to awareness, but you know, di discovering the product that that works and where to make it work, and then how to get it manufactured. I mean, um, I, I don't think there's any hurdle you can't overcome. So it's it's pretty impressive. So I I appreciate you sharing a little bit on, on what all that you're up to, and really. Uh, what I'm so excited about, about Farinam and the potential is, is that now you're giving us a, a biological alternative for significant pest problems uh, that is going to uh, help to enable the regenerative agriculture movement in a big way. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for what all you're doing, Dr. Kaplan. It's, uh, it's a real joy to see it and, and uh, it's a pleasure to know you. Thank you. There's one last thing I wanted to mention is Absolutely. when we visited uh, your farm, yeah. and I have never been to a farm before who practiced regenerative agriculture. Yes, my grandparents were farmers, but they used to use the chemical pesticides. And now they're interested, but seeing how the regenerative agriculture is practiced was a really eye-opening for me. It was a really important experience. I think it did affect even our decision in the company, how the farmers looked at it and how it is practiced and what kind of things we can look at it. Not just, you know, one aspect we learned from the customer calls, but visiting farm was a very different experience and it affected our decision making. <laughs> Well, good. I hope that's I hope that's a positive thing. So, oh, yes, it does. <laughs> no, I you know I encourage you or, or any of the listeners anytime you got the chance to spend time in the field, uh, do it. Uh, it's a the best thing anybody can add to a field outside of pheromones. Uh, you know, pheromones is their shadow. You know, the best thing we can do is is, is spend time in the field. So. But no, thank you. I'm glad you came. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and I'm glad it had an impact. And. Uh, Thank that's you. what we that's what we hope to do. So thanks again for your time today, Fatma. It's, it's been a real joy. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation today. It's exciting to hear the passion and drive Dr. Kaplan has for finding ways to bring new technologies to market and her desire to talk and work directly with farmers to find solutions that work. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing to help growers implement soil health practices, check out our website at asn.farm. And there you can click on links to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. There's a lot of great things happening and always something to learn. Thanks for listening.